339, chapters 13 and 14. Book Talk begins at 7 minutes and 30 seconds. Welcome to Craftlet. The podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from the shores of the Potomac in Virginia, the Old Dominion. Episode 339, Mitz. This episode brought to you by Little Acorn Creations, handmade accessories for heart and home. And Knit Circus, the e-newsletter delivered to your mailbox, bringing you three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can find out more at www.knitcircus.com. And March Hare Yarns, hand-dyed yarn just for you. You can visit the March Hare at Etsy. And Pennywise Consulting, technology solutions for your small business. Links to all of our sponsors' pages can be found in the show notes at craftlit.com. Remember, their support for the show is what keeps it free for you. So go take a look. Well, hello. It is I, Heather, and I am freaking out today. I am going to go speak to the Prince William Perlers tonight. But I have spent the last, I am not joking, four out of seven days at the computer repair shop. I tried so hard to podcast last night and that didn't happen and didn't happen earlier. And oh my goodness, crazy, crazy times. And then two out of the last seven days, I also spent at the car shop. I tell you what, I have had enough of things breaking. And now I have a new computer, which I wasn't expecting to have to buy, but there it is. Uh, I kind of had to have one that worked. So, you are listening to a new podcast on a new computer. Congratulations. But as a consequence of the crazy, I have some quick things to get through, and then we'll talk about the book. Our raffle, our April raffle, because hello, happy Fool's Day. It is April Fool's, and I am not kidding about any of the things I'm going to tell you today, so you don't have to worry about that. Uh, Knitted Mitts and Mittens. 25 Fun and Fashionable Designs for Fingerless Gloves, Mittens, and Wrist Warmers by Amy Gunderson. It is the book that is our raffle item for this month. You can follow the link in the show notes at craftlit.com episode 339. And you can go and sign up on the dedicated giveaway page. And then you can share that page with anyone you know. If you want them to compete against you for the raffle item. At the end of the month, I will have the raffle copter widget automatically select a winner and I will email you and then send the book your way. It's a really pretty book. I will be talking more about it on the podcast next week and I will be doing a little Q&A with Amy Gunderson uh, later this month on mamaonets.com. Uh, We are starting to collect pictures of the What Would Madame Defarge Knit and Grounded books in the wild. So if you are ever somewhere and you see in your local yarn store or bookstore or library any of the books that I'm affiliated with, or actually any cooperative press book also, please send me a snap. I would love 
to have it. And I would love to know what store you were in when you saw said book, because um, we'd like to give them a, a little bit of props too. That would be nice. But I have a couple of those pictures on the show notes for this week. So you can see uh, Meg, you can see Erica. I love the picture of Erica. And then, you know, send in your own. Heather at craftlit.com is the best way to get a hold of me. Uh, Kathleen, just this second, emailed me with a link to a very brief tour of England by accent. And it's it's on the BBC page. I have a link to it. BBC does weird things in the United States, so I'm not sure if this is one of those links that will suddenly die next week or if it will live on in in all of our future time. I have no idea, but uh, I'm hopeful. And either way, I'm giving you the link. I am also, I got, I got an interesting series of emails about uh, the Bleak House files on the downloading site. Uh, we were trying to troubleshoot some weirdness that had happened with the downloading. If you are a downloading subscriber and you ever find that you are having a difficult time getting the file to unzip properly, try right-clicking it and download the file as, and then you can name it whatever you want to name it, or just make sure that you download it to your desktop and then open it from there. Or try right-clicking on the file itself and seeing if it gives you the option to decompress it again. We're finding that there there seems to be some computers have this weird multi-step decompression thing that they want to do. So that's one thing. The second thing is I'm going to be going through and renaming the Bleak House streaming files as per the request of listener uh, to make it a little bit easier for you to sort and find them. Uh, she's brilliant. And what she'd been doing was going through and starring all of the Bleak House episodes and then listening off of the starred list. I know, right? And that way she was able to hear them all in order without having to find them in the midst of all of the regular episodes. So genius move on her part, and I will be renaming those episodes, the Bleak House episodes, to try and facilitate that move as well. The other thing is, uh, in trying to identify the problems with the downloading on the Bleak House files, I realized that a very important piece of technology was invented midway through Bleak House. So I am remastering all of the Bleak House files, re-zipping them for downloads, and then I will be replacing them on the uh, streamable app. So if you are a streaming subscriber or a downloading subscriber, uh, by next week, you should have access to improved audio files. There's this website. If you do any audio yourself, you should know about it. It's called ophonic.com, A-U-P-H-O-N-I-C.com. It is amazing. And it's one of the reasons why the podcast sounds better these days than it ever has before. So we can all thank Ophonic because that place rocks my world. The remastering and zipping also means that the second huge chunk of Bleak House will be going into the shop. So you will have two-thirds of the book available in the shop shortly. And that's a good thing for everyone. So two things crossed my line of vision this week. And they both, it's again, they both relate to this uh, aspect of the book about us, uh, or the, the people in the book, but people in general too, uh, not being able to see people for who they really are outside of the category that we have placed them in before we've gotten to know them. And one of them is a 
fascinating article on the Waco compound David Koresh thing. If you are, what, older than 35, probably, you remember this thing that happened in the the early 90s, mid-90s, mid-90s. It was horrible. And I never, I don't know about you, but I never got a really clear picture of what happened. There was a, a, a religious group. They were part of the Seventh-day Adventist group. They'd broken off. They were called the Branch Davidians. They had a compound in Waco, Texas, and uh, the FBI had gotten intel that they were hoarding guns. See, I don't even remember this. Hoarding guns and converting them to automatic weapons. Some There was some weird something that they thought was going on. And and it just escalated and got out of control real fast and wound up killing a lot of them in a horrible, horrible fire, um, which interestingly, that part I just did find out. That was because they put, uh, I believe it was tear gas or the gas that they used was flammable and they shot the canisters through the walls into rooms that had candles and Coleman lanterns. So it wasn't one of those purposeful things. It was really just horrible. It was horrible. But the whole reason I bring it up is this article's in the New Yorker this week, and I'll link to it because it's all about how the FBI guys had their preconceived ideas about David Koresh and the people who were in there. They thought Koresh was like a Charles Manson, that these people had been brainwashed, that they were there against their will, uh, that it was it was a an ugly cult that they thought it was going to be like that uh, what was it the horrible uh, was it Jonestown uh, massacre where everybody drank the Kool Aid and died they thought it was one of those situations or like the uh, it had happened recently the Hale Bop Comet folks in Southern California who ate the Jello in that case I think and put bags over their head and went to meet the comet. So in the Waco, Texas thing, the FBI guys got it into their heads that, that this was a, a bad cult situation and that these people were not free to leave the compound if they wanted to. And it turns out, oh, they were perfectly free. In fact, they were out in the town all the time working. They had friends. They It was not any of this. But because there was a religious element connected to all of this, the FBI guys profiled this group in such a way that made it impossible for them to communicate with each other. And the thing that is really fascinating about the article is watching the transcripts of the negotiations, because they're both speaking English, but they are not speaking the same language at all. And it was that inability to communicate that led to the the horrible conflagration at the end. And it was it was amazing because I'm sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, it's exactly the same thing. It's that y- you can't even speak the same language. You're just going to keep insulting each other because you don't know what the other person's talking about. And the nice thing about today's chapters is we start to see that breaking down. We start to see Margaret finally having someone who's willing to kind of teach her a little bit, ask questions, but also teach her a little bit about what it's like to live in Milton. So that was cool. The the Koresh article and the, the parallel. The other thing I wanted to announce, it, it doesn't matter quite so much yet, but it will very soon. If you are young, 
you have no uh, muscle memory about about uh, the 70s or, or prior to that. And you might never have heard of a movie called Norma Ray. You may only know Sally Field as feisty, feisty Mrs. Lincoln from the, the Daniel Day-Lewis Lincoln movie. You, I don't even know what you know her from. I know her as the flying nun. My mom knows her as Gidget. And then she was in uh, Smokey and the Bandit, which was awesome. And so, but it was all this kind of lightweight stuff. She was just this cute, perky little actress. And then she does Norma Ray. And if you have never seen this movie before, you simply must. I, I don't know that it's okay to show children. I think there's one place where it would really not be a good idea to, but, but there are scenes that you would probably want to share with your child because they are such inspirational moments and <laughs> and you'll walk away saying kvetch 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 and it will all make sense if you see the movie and i bring this up for for two reasons one is that understanding unions and understanding the reasons behind unions not our current state of unions whatever whatever complicated thing that is. But understanding where it came from and what the impetus was in the beginning is crucial. And Norma Ray is being remastered and re-released in a, a cleaned up version. So it's it's now on Blu-ray and uh and Sally Field won an Oscar for that. And it was really it was a big deal for her. <laughs> Anybody who remembers that that Academy Awards you remember, you like me, you really like me. But it was also one of those films that I think really captured the the difficulties that in a in a mo- even in a modern setting the difficulties that people faced when trying to um, find a way to improve improve their lives and so that was and that was done in in 1979 and there actually it's like week of unions uh, there were three other three other movies that are coming out that have been remastered on Blu-ray um, Blue Collar which was 1978. Silkwood, which is Meryl Streep and Cher. Go Cher. If you've never thought Cher could act, you should go see Silkwood. Uh, that was 1983. And then uh, Meituan, which is actually about the 20s in the United States, the 1920s in the United States. And it's a it's a John Sayles film. If you've never seen John Sayles films, he's he's a very interesting director and it's a very interesting movie. And the cast will surprise you both by their being so young <laughs> and also by who they are because now you know most of them and that nobody did back at the time and that brings us to margaret and today's chapters chapter 13 and 14 and if you recall last week margaret had to sit through mrs thornton and and her uh, daughter's visit and that was not particularly pleasant. But she had been wanting to go visit Bessie, who she had told she would. So this chapter, chapter 13, picks up with Margaret heading over to Bessie's place. Now, we've talked before briefly about the fact that when Margaret was the son of a clergyman, this would have been a perfectly normal thing for her to do. But it turns out that actually in Victorian England, this had become kind of controversial this is a lot of really interesting research. For those of you listening to Bleak House, if you think back to Mrs. Jellyby, but also and especially to Mrs. Particle, who goes visiting the poor and makes things much worse than she should have or 
than leaving them alone would have. Uh, that's where there was this problem. It was like competitive poor visiting. This uh, there was it was kind of like a a mobility issue that once you hit a certain level of middle class or upper middle classness, uh, you would <laughs> women who had nothing else to do would kind of compete to see who could help the most poor, which then made some people behave more poor than they actually were to just, you know, get a handout. So it caused all sorts of craziness. And this is why Margaret is really interesting. She may not be able to deal with the merchant class at all, but she knows how to pay a visit to somebody who isn't as well off as she is. So when she when she goes to Bessie's, uh, she notices that the floor has been cleaned. They called it rough stoning. Where uh, I I I am guessing because there aren't any references that I've been able to find to this that uh, rough stoning would just be sweeping off the the stones. And she notices that it's really only the visible ones that got cleaned under the chairs and under the table didn't get cleaned. But the the other thing that I thought was kind of cool is uh, Margaret is paying attention, but she misinterprets some things. Like, there's a fire in the grate. It's a warm day. She thinks that they must have the fire there because Bessie is sick. But in fact, they have the fire there because coal is expensive. And putting a fire up shows that you respect the person who's there. I had something kind of similar happen when I was in the Dominican Republic. We were visiting some, my sister and I were visiting some musicians out in the barrio where it was a long walk to the nearest store and they offered us uh, rum, and, rum and Coke or rum and Pepsi and chipped ice. And the, the ice, it was really interesting. The ice came in a, a long, thin plastic bag. So it was like a long tube of ice. It was really cool. and It made, made for really easy storage. And it, on the way out, I said to my sister, that was special, wasn't it? Having the ice because they didn't have a refrigerator. And she looked at me and she said, yeah, that was that was because we were there. They wouldn't have had it otherwise. And it was hot. And and that was that was important. And and I sure appreciated it. And God, the musicians were great. So so Margaret misses misses that one, but she she gets a lot of the other stuff that's really important. And along with other really important stuff, we are going to find out a lot more about Margaret and Bessie and Margaret's brother in today's chapters. There's a, a lot of uh, talking in the chapters and a lot gets exposed. So without waiting any longer, let's listen to chapters 13 and 14 of Elizabeth Gaskell's North and South. Chapter 13 A Soft Breeze in a Sultry Place that doubt and trouble, fear and pain and anguish, all are shadows vain, that death itself shall not remain, that weary deserts we may tread, a dreary labyrinth may thread, through dark ways underground be led, yet, if we will one guide obey, the dreariest path, the darkest way, shall issue out in heavenly day. And we, on diverse shores now cast, shall meet our perilous voyage past, all in our Father's house at last. 
R.C. Trench Margaret flew upstairs as soon as their visitors were gone and put on her bonnet and shawl to run and inquire how Bessie Higgins was and sit with her as long as she could before dinner. As she went along the crowded narrow streets, she felt how much of interest they had gained by the simple fact of her having learnt to care for a dweller in them. Mary Higgins, the slatternly younger sister, had endeavoured as well as she could to tidy up the house for the expected visit. There had been rough stoning done in the middle of the floor, while the flags under the chairs and table and round the walls retained their dark, unwashed appearance. Although the day was hot, there burnt a large fire in the grate, making the whole place feel like an oven. Margaret did not understand that the lavishness of coals was a sign of hospitable welcome to her on Mary's part, and thought that perhaps the oppressive heat was necessary for Bessie. Bessie herself lay on a squab or short sofa placed under the window. She was very much more feeble than on the previous day, and tired with raising herself at every step to look out and see if it was Margaret coming. And now that Margaret was there, and had taken a chair by her, Bessie lay back silent and content to look at Margaret's face and touch her articles of dress with a childish admiration of their fineness of texture. I never knew why folk in the Bible cared for soft raiment afore, but it must be nice to go dressed as you do. It's different from common. Most fine folk tire my eyes out with their colors, but somehow, Yours rest me. Where did you get this frock? In London, said Margaret, much amused. London? Have you been in London? Yes, I lived there for some years, but my home was in a forest in the country. Tell me about it, said Bessie. I like to hear speak of the country and trees and such like things. She leant back and shut her eye and crossed her hands over her breast, lying at perfect rest, as if to receive all the ideas Margaret could suggest. Margaret had never spoken of Helston since she left it, except just naming the place incidentally. She saw it in dreams more vivid than life, and as she fell away to slumber at nights, her memory wandered in all its pleasant places. But her heart was open to this girl. Oh, Bessie, I love the home we have left so dearly. I wish you could see it. I cannot tell you half its beauty. There are great trees standing all about it, with their branches stretching long and level and making a deep shade of rest even at noonday. And yet, though every leaf may seem still, there is a continual rushing sound of movement all around, not close at hand. Then, sometimes, the turf is as soft and fine as velvet, and sometimes quite lush with the perpetual moisture of a little hidden tinkling brook near at hand. And then, in other parts, there are billowy ferns, whole stretches of fern, some in the green shadow, some with long streaks of golden sunlight lying on them, just like the sea. I have never seen the sea murmured Bessie. But go on. Then, here and there, 
There are wide commons, high up as if above the very tops of the trees. I'm glad of that. I felt smothered like down below. When I have gone for an out, I've always wanted to get high up and see far away and take a deep breath of fullness in that air. I get smothered enough in Milton, and I think the sound you speak of among the trees going on forever and ever would send me dazed. It's that made my head ache so in the mill. Now, on these commons, I reckon, there is but little noise. No, said Margaret, nothing but here and there a lark high in the air. Sometimes I used to hear a farmer speaking sharp and loud to his servants, but it was so far away that it only reminded me pleasantly that other people were hard at work in some distant place while I just sat on the heather and did nothing. I used to think once that if I could have a day of doing nothing to rest me, a day in some quiet place like that you speak on, it would maybe set me up. But now... I've had many days of idleness, and I'm just as weary of them as I was of my work. Sometimes I'm so tired out, I think I cannot enjoy heaven without a piece of rest first. I'm rather afeard of going straight there, without getting a good sleep in the grave, to set me up. Don't be afraid, Bessie, said Margaret, laying her hand on the girl's. God can give you more perfect rest than even idleness on earth or the dead sleep of the grave can do. Bessie moved uneasily. Then she said, I wish Father would not speak as he does. He means well, as I told you yesterday and tell you again and again. But, you see, though I don't believe I'm a bit by day, yet by night... When I'm in a fever, half asleep and half awake, it comes back upon me, oh, so bad. And I think, if this should be the end of all, and if all I've been born for is just to work my heart and my life away and to sicken in this dree place with the mill noises in my ears forever till I could scream out for them to stop and let me have... A little piece of quiet, and with the fluff filling my lungs till I thirst to death for one long, deep breath of the clear air you speak on, and my mother gone, and I never able to tell her again how I loved her, and all of my troubles. I think if this is the end, and that there's no God to wipe away all tears from all eyes. Yo, wench, yo, said she sitting up and clutching violently, almost fiercely, at Margaret's hand. I could go mad and kill you, I could. She fell back completely worn out with her passion. Margaret knelt down by her. Bessie, we have a father in heaven. I know it, I know it, moaned she, turning her head uneasily from side to side. I'm very wicked. I've spoken very wickedly. Oh, don't be frightened by me and never come again. I would not harm a hair of your head. And, opening her eyes and looking earnestly at Margaret, I believe, perhaps, more than you do or what's to come. I read the book or revelations until I know it off by heart. And, 
I never doubt when I'm waking and in my senses of all the glory I'm to come to. Don't let us talk of what fancies come into your head when you are feverish. I would rather hear something about what you used to do when you were well. I think I was well when Mother died, but I have never been rightly strong since somewhere about that time. I began to work in a garden room soon after, and the fluff got into my lungs and poisoned me. Fluff, said Margaret inquiringly. Fluff, repeated Bessie. Little bits as fly off from the cotton when they're carding it and fill the air till it looks all fine white dust. They say it winds round the lungs and tightens them up. Anyhow, there's many a one as works in a carding room that falls into a waste, coughing and spitting blood because they're just poisoned by the fluff. But can't it be helped? asked Margaret. I don't know. Some folk have a great wheel at one end of their garden rooms to make a draft and carry off the dust. But that wheel costs a deal of money, five or six hundred pound, maybe, and brings in no profit, so it's but a few of the masters as will put them up. And I've heard tell of men who didn't like working places where there was a wheel, because they said as how it made them hungry that after they'd been long used to swallow and fluff to go without it, and that their wage ought to be raised if they were to work in such places. So between masters and men, the wheels fall through. I know I wish there'd been a wheel in our place, though. Did not your father know about it? asked Margaret. Yes, and he was sorry, but our factory were a good one on the whole, and a steady, likely set of people and father was afeard of letting me go to a strange place, for, though you would not think it now, many a one then used to call me a greatly lass enough, and I did not like to be recognition soft, and Mary's schooling were to be kept up, mother said, and father, he were always lacking to buy books and go to lectures of one kind or another, all of which took money, so I just worked on till... I shall never get the whirr out of my ears or the fluff out of my throat in this world. That's all. How old are you? asked Margaret. Nineteen, come July. And I, too, am nineteen, she thought more sorrowfully than Bessie did of the contrast between them. She could not speak for a moment or two for the emotion she was trying to keep down. About Mary, said Bessie. I wanted to ask you to be a friend to her. She's seventeen, but she's the last on us, and I don't want her to go to the mill, and yet I don't know what she's fit for. She could not do, Margaret glanced unconsciously at the uncleaned corners of the room. She could hardly undertake a servant's place, could she? We have an old faithful servant, almost a friend, who wants help, but who is very particular. And it would not be right to plague her with giving her any assistance that would really be an annoyance and an irritation. No, I see. I reckon you're right. A Mary's a good wench, but who has she had to teach her what to do about a house? No, mother me at the mill till I were good for nothing but scolding her for doing badly what 
I didn't know how to do a bit. But I wish she could have lived with you for all that. But even though she may not be exactly fitted to come and live with us as a servant, and I don't know about that, I will always try and be a friend to her for your sake, Bessie. And now I must go. I will come again as soon as I can, but if it should not be tomorrow or the next day, or even a week or a fortnight hence, don't think I've forgotten you. I may be busy. I know you won't forget me again. I'll not mistrust you no more. But remember, in a week or a fortnight, I may be dead and buried. I'll come as soon as I can, Bessie, said Margaret, squeezing her hand tight. But you'll let me know if you are worse. Aye, that will I, said Bessie, returning the pressure. From that day forwards, Mrs. Hale became more and more of a suffering invalid. It was now drawing near to the anniversary of Edith's marriage, and looking back upon the year's accumulated heap of troubles, Margaret wondered how they had been borne. If she could have anticipated them, how she would have shrunk away and hid herself from the coming time. And yet, day by day had, of itself and by itself, been very endurable small, keen, bright little spots of positive enjoyment having come sparkling into the very middle of sorrows. A year ago, or when she first went to Helston and first became silently conscious of the querulousness in her mother's temper, she would have grown bitterly over the idea of a long illness to be born in a strange, desolate, noisy, busy place with diminished comforts on every side of the home life. But with the increase of serious and just ground of complaint, a new kind of patience had sprung up in her mother's mind. She was gentle and quiet in intense bodily suffering, almost in proportion as she had been restless and depressed when there had been no real cause for grief. Mr. Hale was in exactly that stage of apprehension which, in men of his stamp, takes the shape of willful blindness. He was more irritated than Margaret had ever known him at his daughter's expressed anxiety. Indeed, Margaret, you are growing fanciful. God knows I should be the first to take the alarm if your mother were really ill. We always saw when she had her headaches at Helston, even without her telling us. She looks quite pale and white even when she is ill, and now she has a bright, healthy color in her cheeks, just as she used to have when I first knew her. But, Papa, said Margaret with hesitation, do you know, I think that is the flush of pain. Nonsense, Margaret. I tell you, you are too fanciful. You are the person not well, I think. Send for the doctor tomorrow for yourself, and then, if it will make your mind easier, he can see your mother. Thank you, dear Papa. It will make me happier indeed and she went up to him to kiss him, but he pushed her away, gently enough, but still as if she had suggested unpleasant ideas which he should be glad to get rid of as readily as he could of her presence. He walked uneasily up and down the room. Poor Maria, said he, half soliloquizing. I wish one could do right without sacrificing others. I shall hate this town and myself too if she... Pray, Margaret... Does your mother often talk to you of the old places, of Helston, I mean? No, Papa, 
said Margaret sadly. And you see, she can't be fretting after them, eh? It has always been a comfort to me to think that your mother was so simple and open that I knew every little grievance she had. She never would conceal anything seriously affecting her health from me, would she, eh, Margaret? I'm quite sure she would not. So don't let me hear of these foolish, morbid ideas. Come, give me a kiss and run off to bed. But she heard him pacing about, raccooning as she and Edith used to call it, long after her slow and languid undressing was finished, long after she began to listen as she lay in bed. Chapter 14 The Mutiny I was used to sleep at nights as sweetly as a child. Now, if the wind blew rough, it made me start and think of my poor boy tossing about upon the roaring seas. And then I seemed to feel that it was hard to take him from me for such a little fault. Southie it was a comfort to Margaret about this time to find that her mother drew more tenderly and intimately towards her than she had ever done since the days of her childhood. She took her to her heart as a confidential friend, the post Margaret had always longed to fill and had envied Dixon for being preferred to. Margaret took pains to respond to every call made upon her for sympathy, and they were many, even when they bore relation to trifles, which she would no more have noticed or regarded herself than the elephant would perceive the little pin at his feet, which yet he lifts carefully up at the bidding of his keeper. All unconsciously, Margaret drew near to a reward. One evening, Mr. Hale being absent, her mother began to talk to her about her brother Frederick, the very subject on which Margaret had longed to ask questions and almost the only one on which her timidity overcame her natural openness. The more she wanted to hear about him, the less likely she was to speak. Oh, Margaret, it was so windy last night. It came howling down the chimney in our room. I could not sleep. I never can when there is such a terrible wind. I got into a wakeful habit when poor Frederick was at sea, and now, even if I don't wake in all at once, I dream of him in some stormy sea with great clear glass-green walls of waves on either side his ship, but far higher than her very masts, curling over her with that cruel, terrible white foam, like some gigantic crested serpent. It is an old dream, but it always comes back on windy nights till I am thankful to waken, sitting straight and stiff up in bed with my terror. Poor Frederick. He is on land now, so wind can do him no harm. Though I did think it might shake down some of those tall chimneys. Where is Frederick now, Mamma? Our letters are directed to the care of Master's Barber at Cadiz, I know. But where is he himself? I can't remember the name of the place, but 
He is not called Hale. You must remember that, Margaret. Notice the F.D. in every corner of the letters. He has taken the name of Dickinson. I wanted him to have been called Beresford, to which he had a kind of right, but your father thought he had better not. He might be recognized, you know, if he were called by my name. Mamma, said Margaret, I was at Aunt Shaw's when it all happened, and I suppose I was not old enough to be told plainly about it. But I should like to know now, if I may, if it does not give you too much pain to speak about it. Pain, no, replied Mrs. Hale, her cheek flushing. Yet it is pain to think that perhaps I may never see my darling boy again. Or else he did right, Margaret. They may say what they like, but I have his own letters to show, and I'll believe him, though he is my son, sooner than any court-martial on earth. Go to my little Japan cabinet, dear, and in the second left-hand drawer you will find a packet of letters. Margaret went. There were the yellow sea-stained letters, with the peculiar fragrance which ocean letters have. Margaret carried them back to her mother, who untied the silken string with trembling fingers, and, examining their dates, she gave them to Margaret to read, making her hurried, anxious remarks on their contents almost before her daughter could have understood what they were. You see, Margaret, how far from the very first he disliked Captain Reed— he was second lieutenant in the ship, the Orion, in which Frederick sailed the very first time. Poor little fellow, how well he looked in his midshipman's dress with his dirk in his hand, cutting open all the newspapers with it as if it were a paper knife. But this Mr. Reed, as he was then, seemed to take a dislike to Frederick from the very beginning. And then, stay, these are the letters he wrote on board the Russell when he was appointed to her and found his old enemy Captain Reed in command, he did mean to bear all his tyranny patiently. Look, this is the letter. Just read it, Margaret. Where is it, he says. Stop. My father may rely upon me that I will bear with all proper patience everything that one officer and gentleman can take from another. But... From my former knowledge of my present captain, I confess I look forward with apprehension to a long course of tyranny on board the Russell. You see, he promises to bear patiently, and I am sure he did, for he was the sweetest-tempered boy when he was not vexed that could possibly be. Is that the letter in which he speaks of Captain Reed's impatience with the men for not going through the ship's maneuvers as quickly as the Avenger? You see, he says that they had many new hands on board the Russell, while the Avenger had been nearly three years on the station, with nothing to do but keep slavers off and work her men till they ran up and down the rigging like rats or monkeys. Margaret slowly read the letter, half illegible through the fading of the ink. It might be, it probably was, a statement of Captain Reed's imperiousness in trifles, very much exaggerated by the narrator, who had written it while fresh and warm from the scene of altercation. 
some sailors being aloft in the main topsail rigging. The captain had ordered them to race down, threatening the hindmost with the cat of nine tails. He who was the farthest on the spar, feeling the impossibility of passing his companions and yet passionately dreading the disgrace of the flogging, threw himself desperately down to catch a rope considerably lower, failed, and fell senseless on deck. He only survived for a few hours afterwards, and the indignation of the ship's crew was at boiling point when young Hale wrote. But we did not receive this letter till long, long after we heard of the mutiny. Poor Fred, I dare say it was a comfort to him to write it, even though he could not have known how to send it, poor fellow. And then we saw a report in the papers, that's to say, long before Fred's letter reached us, of an atrocious mutiny having broken out on board the Russell and that the mutineers had remained in possession of the ship, which had gone off, it was supposed, to be a pirate, and that Captain Reed was sent adrift in a boat with some men, officers or something, whose names were all given, for they were picked up by a West Indian steamer. Oh, Margaret, how your father and I turned sick over that list when there was no name of Frederick Hale. We thought it must be some mistake, for poor Fred was such a fine fellow, only perhaps rather too passionate, and we hoped that the name of Carr, which was in the list, was a misprint for that of Hale. Newspapers are so careless. And towards post-time the next day, Papa set off to walk to Southampton to get the papers, and I could not stop at home, so I went to meet him. He was very late, much later than I thought he would have been, and I sat down under the hedge to wait for him. He came at last, his arms hanging loose down, his head sunk and walking heavily along, as if every step was a labor and a trouble. Margaret, I see him now. Don't go on, Mamma. I can understand it all said Margaret, leaning up caressingly against her mother's side and kissing her hand. No, you can't, Margaret. No one can who did not see him then. I could hardly lift myself up to go and meet him. Everything seemed so to reel around me all at once. And when I got to him, he did not speak or seem surprised to see me there more than three miles from home beside the old beech tree. But he put my arm in his and kept stroking my hand as if he wanted to soothe me to be very quiet under some great heavy blow. And when I trembled so all over that I could not speak, he took me in his arms and stooped down his head on mine, and began to shake and to cry in a strange, muffled, groaning voice, till I, for very fright, stood quite still, and only begged him to tell me what he had heard. And then, with his hand jerking, as if someone else moved it against his will, he gave me a wicked newspaper to read, calling our Frederick a traitor of the blackest dye, a base, ungrateful disgrace to his profession. Oh, I cannot 
tell you what bad words they did not use. I took the paper in my hands as soon as I had read it. I tore it up to little bits. I tore it. Oh, I believe, Margaret, I tore it with my teeth. I did not cry. I could not. My cheeks were hot as fire, and my very eyes burnt in my head. I saw your father looking grave at me. I said it was a lie, and so it was. Months after this letter came, and you see what provocation Frederick had. It was not for himself or his own injuries he rebelled, but he would speak his mind to Captain Reed, and so it went on from bad to worse. And you see, most of the sailors stuck by Frederick. I think, Margaret, she continued after a pause in a weak, trembling, exhausted voice. I am glad of it. I am prouder of Frederick standing up against injustice than if he had been simply a good officer. I am sure I am, said Margaret in a firm, decided tone. Loyalty and obedience to wisdom and justice are fine, but it is still finer to defy arbitrary power unjustly and cruelly used, not on behalf of ourselves, but on behalf of others more helpless. For all that, I wish I could see Frederick once more, just once. He was my first baby, Margaret. Mrs. Hale spoke wistfully and almost as if apologizing for the yearning, craving wish, as though it were a depreciation of her remaining child. But such an idea never crossed Margaret's mind. She was thinking how her mother's desire could be fulfilled. It is six or seven years ago. Would they still prosecute him, mother? If he came and stood his trial, what would be the punishment? Surely he might bring evidence of his great provocation. It would do no good replied Mrs. Hale. Some of the sailors who accompanied Frederick were taken, and there was a court-martial held on them on board the Amicia. I believed all they said in their defense, poor fellows, because it just agreed with Frederick's story. But it was of no use. And for the first time during the conversation, Mrs. Hale began to cry. Yet something possessed Margaret to force the information she foresaw yet dreaded from her mother. What happened to them, Mamma? asked she. They were hung at the yard arm, said Mrs. Hale solemnly. And the worst was that the court, in condemning them to death, said they had suffered themselves to be led astray from their duty by their superior officers. They were silent for a long time. And Frederick was in South America for several years, was he not? Yes, and now he is in Spain, at Cadiz or somewhere near it. If he comes to England, he will be hung. I shall never see his face again, for if he comes to England, he will be hung. There was no comfort to be given. Mrs. Hale turned her face to the wall and lay perfectly still in her mother's despair. Nothing could be said to console her. She took her hand out of Margaret's with a little impatient movement, as if she would fain be left alone with the recollection of her son. 
When Mr. Hale came in, Margaret went out, oppressed with gloom and seeing no promise of brightness on any side of the horizon. Wow. So, that's what happened to her brother. I had lots of things that I thought <laughs> might have been, but that was not it. And it's it's interesting because this concept of, of mutinying or, or characters having been uh, in or around mutinies has come up before in uh, in different books. But this is the first time, I think the mutiny on the bounty was early 1800s. But this was the first time I remember uh, reading a character who's been accused of being involved in a mutiny who wasn't like, what's his name, Wickham in Pride and Prejudice. You know, that Frederick isn't smarmy, at least as far as we know. And his mother and father both believed him, which I suppose may not hold water with, with anyone, but but it seems to me that the Hales are the kind of people who would actually stop and weigh the evidence and take a look. And they they had all of this kind of background information on, on this particular captain. And so poor Frederick, there is nothing he can do. Nothing, nothing he can do. There's no way to appeal this process. And there's certainly no way to safely come back and fight for your rights to a fair trial. So... That stinks. And I also thought it was kind of interesting at the end of chapter 13 when Gaskell says that uh, Hale's response to his wife getting sicker is is his la la la, I'm not going to notice. And that that's just the way guys are. I, I thought, hmm, who's, who's she talking about? But that didn't surprise me a whole lot. But what did surprise me was I I kind of had Mrs. Thornton's attitude towards Mrs. Hale. From the beginning of the book, I thought, like I had mentioned earlier, that, oh, she's going to be Mrs. Bennett. She's going to be that kind of silly, silly woman. And then it became clear that she kind of wasn't. She doesn't strike you as being that that silly. And now she, she really is actually sick. And getting worse. And that makes her a different kind of person. She really might have been suffering, really suffering all that time. And it's it's nice, at least, that as she is getting more ill, she is drawing closer to Margaret. It's hard on Margaret, I'm sure, but, but nice. Nice that at least they have the time together uh, as she's declining. And one thing that struck me as very interestingly done and and subtle, I didn't catch it until, you know, the, I don't know, the third or fourth or fifth time I'd listened to the, the chapters. Margaret goes to visit Bessie, and Bessie almost immediately asks Margaret to describe Helston. And Margaret does, and she does a, uh, she does a lovely job, and, and her, her stories really do seem to make Bessie happy instead of jealous or weary or angry. It's just for her, it's something nice to picture. But the last time we heard somebody ask Margaret to describe Helston was Lennox, and she gave him what for? 
and, and pushed him off and said she couldn't possibly describe it. How interesting the difference in how she is asked and in where she is in relationship to the place. Yeah, I don't know if it's Bessie that made her soften or, I mean, I don't think she would ever responding to Bessie the way she did to, to Lennox, but is it is it the distance? Is it the time distance, the physical distance, the the person? I don't know. Maybe it's just all of it. But I thought, oh, that was that was nicely done. That was nicely done because now we really can start to see in one very specific way how Margaret has changed since she's moved to Milton. And that is where I will leave you for this week. I hope you have a fantastic week. I hope I make it through this week and I will talk to you soon. Take care. Bye. Like Craftlet? Leave us a review on iTunes, like us on Facebook, or post a link to us when you comment on literary blogs. You can listen via Stitcher Radio, craftlit.com, or via our Android, our new Windows 8, or iPhone app. You can also use the free Craftlit app to access premium subscriber content. Craftlit is and has been made possible by the support of its listeners. And for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.